Welcome to the Modern Law Library podcast. My name is Lee Rawls, and I am here with Mary Norris, a copy editor at The New Yorker, who just wrote the book, Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen. Mary, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Now, some might question why we're having a book all about grammar on a podcast for a legal audience. But let me tell you, our audience is quite obsessed with grammar. I think that you know Brian Garner, uh, who's a columnist for our magazine. Do you notice in your interactions with the public and the New Yorker readership any professions that particularly care about grammar and punctuation and have such strong opinions? Well, mostly copy editors, of course, care a lot. Also librarians, also writers of all stripes. But it is true that the legal profession has a lot riding on usage and punctuation. Very much so. Uh, I actually did not know this before reading your book, but you say that the um, sort of forefather of American dictionaries, Noah Webster, himself attempted to be a lawyer. Yes, he meant to be a lawyer. He went to Yale, and he graduated from Yale during the American Revolution, intending to be a lawyer. But he went back to West Hartford, and his father more or less cut him off. His father was all tapped out. He'd mortgaged his farm to pay for Noah to go to Yale in the first place. So Noah Webster went to work as a school teacher, and it's because he was so appalled at his students' pronunciation that he compiled the spelling book, his idea being to break words down into their syllables and use spelling to teach pronunciation. Now, you make a confession in this book that uh, was also true of me as a child, which is that you would read a word and think, oh, well, I know how to pronounce that and, and use it in sentences and then on, discover later, oh, no, oh, no, that's not the correct pronunciation. Well, that's one of the things I actually discovered through reading the very first spelling book that Noah Webster put out. I, of course, I've been mispronouncing words all my life, and some people correct me, some more gently than others. But I was amazed that this book from the 18th century taught me to pronounce a lot of words I'd never pronounced properly before. For instance, there's the the word, I'll spell it first, C-H-I-M-E-R-A, which I always pronounce shimmera, and it means a kind of frightening vision. But it's actually a word from the Greek, and that C-H at the beginning is a hard C-H, and the word is pronounced chimera. That's one I did know, but one that I used with confidence for approximately two years between the ages of 11 and 13 was macabre, but I pronounced it macrobe, which isn't even <laughs> supported in the text. <laughs> oh, I wonder what that would mean, some form of string knots that you would you think. care people with. <laughs> so can you tell me why you decided to write this book? I find it very kind of humanizing. A lot of people think of grammar as a very dry thing, um, but in the lives of those of us who do a lot of copy editing, it's not always that way. Uh, can you tell me what really inspired you to write this book at this time and to start that series of uh, videos on the New Yorker site that we will link to uh, for any of our listeners who want to see them later? Well, I had always been a writer, and ever since I started working, at, uh, ever since I was a child, I was trying to write and once I moved to New York, I wanted to be published, and I thought I would be published, I hoped I would be published at the New Yorker, and I got a job on the editorial staff there. 
I had some success with talk stories, but I never moved up, moved on to write a longer piece or either fiction or nonfiction for the magazine. And I always had a writing project on the side, travel writing or fiction or a memoir. And I was I always had trouble getting these things published. So in the meantime, I was paying the rent by copy editing, and I moved to the level of copy editing at the New Yorker where you're working with writers and editors and fact-checkers just before our piece goes to press. And I was starting to think that maybe this was it, that I was only ever going to be a copy editor and I was not going to make the leap to writer. And this was in the spring of 2012, and two young women who worked for the magazine's website came to my door and told me that somebody had written a piece for the New York Times making fun of New Yorker commas. And they asked, would I write a piece about commas in defense, in our defense? So I didn't really feel that commas was my great subject (laughs) or that the comma was my great subject to get my verbs and my nouns agreeing. Um, But I thought I should do it in the spirit of the team and because there was no one else who was going to do it. Also, I had inherited what we call the comma shaker, a legendary proofreader at the New Yorker had made this canister, well, she customized a canister that had perforated lid by wrapping paper around it and drawing commas on it and the word commas, and she called it the comma shaker. She herself would have agreed with this fellow, Ben Yagoda, who wrote the piece for the Times, saying that our commas were nutty because we put too many in. Um, I will not go into detail about what sentences he was picking on, but I wrote a defense of nutty commas, and it went up online. It was posted on the New Yorker website, and it went viral. Up until then, I had not realized there was so much interest in the New Yorker's editorial process, but that's when I remembered, oh, that's right, we've always been famously snobbish about our style. It's none of anyone's business why we put two L's in traveled or used a diaresis, those two dots, some people call them umlauts, over, say, the second O in cooperate. Anyway, there was great interest in this. It led me to write other things for the blog, a piece on the diaresis, a piece on the use of profanity in the magazine. And also I started writing about pencils. I, Through my work, I still work in pencil on paper, and I've become a terrible pencil snob, so I started writing about pencils. And when there was enough of, when there were enough of these posts, I decided to get in touch with the last agent who had turned down my last effort, and he was very excited, a book about punctuation and pencils by somebody who worked as a copy editor at The New Yorker. He thought that would sell, so I got a book contract, and that's when I started writing in earnest about all things language. Now, how do you feel about, um, you talk in your book about the battle between, if you're a lexicographer, the prescriptivists who tell you what to do, and the descriptivists who describe how people are actually using the language. Where do you think you fall on on that? Would you, in your personal life, are choosing to use language? 
Well, as a writer, I would say I'm a descriptivist. I don't like anyone telling me to follow the rules. As a copy editor, though, I am told that I am a prescriptivist, and The New Yorker is a bastion of prescriptivism, but we're not really as stern as people tend to think we are. And I think writers, writers might be a little afraid of me sometimes, but if a writer has a good reason for wanting to keep something the way that she has it, I cave quite often and let, let her do it. So I'm a lenient prescriptivist and a stern descriptivist. <laughs> I like that combination. When you approach terms that have just been born, have just come into usage or have gained a new meaning, um, I still remember I had a little campaign going on Twitter uh, and social media trying to get the Associated Press style book to change the style that they had for website which I firmly believe should be one word, lowercase, and they, for a very long time, said uppercase web space site. What are those discussions like when you're at the magazine, um, when you're with people about how do we let the language evolve so that we remain relevant and that people still understand now what we're, what we're talking about? What are those discussions like? Well, there is a lot of discussion about just those terms right now, website. The New Yorker still capitalizes the web and makes it two words. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And what's the other one? Well, Twitter. Obviously, we capitalize and we lowercase tweet. Email, we put the hyphen in. But we were persuaded some years ago that the E should not be capitalized. And it was a writer who said that that made us look out of it, out of touch. And I'm not the one who actually makes these decisions. There is a head of the copy department, and she is quite conservative, and it is the tradition of the magazine to be conservative. There's always time to modernize the spelling and make it in sync with the rest of the world. Once you've done it, you can't go back. And I think we like to wait and see which way the wind is blowing. Um, There's an expression, for instance, the word ringtone. That's not very old, right? I think maybe 10 or 15 years. And when I first saw it, it was written as two words. And then briefly, briefly, it had a hyphen. But that solidified into a single word pretty quickly. And I was all for that. Some words I'm ready to go full steam ahead on. But if it has not yet appeared in the dictionary, it will still be two words in the New Yorker. So let's say you're a lawyer, you care deeply about language, and you want to read more resources about it, about how you are going to craft your own style, how you can correctly use terms and punctuation and grammar Um, Aside from your book, of course, Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen, um, what are some other resources that you would really recommend to them? Well, the book that I am most enamored of for modern American usage is Brian Garner's Garner's Modern American Usage. It has everything in it. It's exhaustive, but not exhausting. And possibly because Garner is a lawyer, 
there's something cool and detached about his descriptions and his method of telling the reader whether something is a good usage or not. He has this scale that he rates things on, and anything that he considers substandard he or just downright wrong, he puts an asterisk in front of so that it's clear to you which things are his preference and which things seem wrong to him. So that's a good guide. The other one that people like is Merriam-Webster's Guide to English Usage. And that is one that I've found when I consult. Whatever I look up, it seems that I can find both pro and con. And it's descriptive instead of prescriptive. Garner is prescriptive. There are things that he admits we use, but you can tell he doesn't like them and he's not going to use them himself. The Merriam-Webster people in the tradition of Webster are descriptive and just show that some people have used it this way and nobody is going to punish you if you do too. You know, we talk about how new words come into usage and everything, but just to draw the curtain back a little bit for our listeners, uh, there over the past year and a half as we have gotten ready to celebrate the 800th anniversary of the signing of the Magna Carta, there's been a pitched battle in the office and Brian Garner um, over, is it the Magna Carta or is it just Magna Carta? And so Mary, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Do you have an opinion on the Magna Carta versus Magna Carta? Well, it sounds like somebody knows what the original Latin actually means. <laughs> it just <laughs> means the big paper, right? Doesn't it? The Magna Carta? <laughs> you can tell that I just put the the in front of it when I repeated the name. So it's not something I've formed an opinion on. It is something that I wouldn't, I wouldn't hesitate to put the the in front of. I might be educated to do otherwise, but at the moment, I would have called it the Magna Carta. Well, the AP Stylebook agrees with you, and the, the magazine has decided to do that, but uh, we actually had a Brian Garner column all about style usage around Magna Carta, and he dropped the the, and we had to have an editor's note. So that uh, that's just one example of how we as a publication, you know, you as a copy editor as well, you know, we have to look at these things, and the English language is a marvelous marvelous thing and finding those little bits of disagreements uh, really are, are quite interesting. So I would love to know his rationale for that. I'll look it up later. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I believe um, that it is because there was not a singular document. There are multiple examples because everyone sort of got their own souvenir Magna Carta to take home with them to their various little fiefdoms. As opposed to, say, the United States Constitution, where we say, oh, that right there, that is the, the original Constitution that everybody signed. Anyway, so I think that's the rationale. But uh, not to get too much in the weeds there. So, Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything else you'd like to tell our readers about your book um, or about your video series on the New Yorker website? Well, the video series grew out of the pieces that I posted on the web. And they're very popular. I actually don't enjoy making them because I'm an, I can write. I don't know why they thought I would also be good on video. <laughs> <laughs> but anything that will help 
people maintain the standards of the language, I'm willing to do it. So I've gone along with it. Well, Mary, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library.